1: Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. <clears throat> we have a terrific program for you today, including uh, special guest William He is a senior legal fellow with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Michael Cannon is the director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Bob Erzik He's the director of uh, public relations at St. Matthew's House. Look forward to that conversation, as well as Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of many books. He also writes a column for Newsmax.com. It's called On Point. We'll visit with Larry as well. It is September the 15th, and on this day in 1978, Muhammad Ali defeated Leon Spinks in the uh, Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans to win the World Heavyweight Boxing title for the third time in his career, the first fighter ever to do so. Following his victory, Ali retired from boxing only to make a brief comeback two years later. He once claimed that he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, left the sport permanently in 1981. He was born Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. in Louisville, Kentucky on January 14, 1942 the future world champ, changed his name to Muhammad Ali in 1964 after converting to Islam. He earned a gold medal in the 1960 Olympic Games in Rome and made his professional boxing debut against Tunny Hunsacker in October 1960. <clears throat> he won the bout in uh, six rounds. On February 25, 1964, he defeated heavily uh, favored Sonny Liston in six rounds to become the heavyweight champ, af- after which he famously declared, I am the greatest. I could just hear those words still ringing in my ears as he said that. During the Vietnam War, Ali refused to be inducted into the U.S. Armed Forces, and in 1967, he was convicted of draft evasion and banned from boxing for three years. He stayed out of prison, as his case was being appealed, returned to the ring in 1970, knocking out Jerry Quarry to Atlanta in the third, third round. On March 8, 1971, Allie fought Joe Frazier in the fight of the century and lost in 15 rounds, the first loss of his professional boxing career. In June 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned his conviction for evading the draft. At a January 1974 rematch at New York City's Madison Square Garden, Alley defeated Frazier in 12 rounds. In October that same year, an underdog alley bested George Foreman and reclaimed his heavyweight championship belt at the heavily hyped Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire, with a uh, knockout in eighth in the eighth round, <clears throat> on February fifteenth, ni- uh, nineteen seventy-eight, in Las Vegas, an aging uh, Ali lost the title to Leon Spinks in a fifteen-round split decision. For Spinks, it was uh, who was born nineteen fifty-three, and uh, won a gold medal in boxing in the nineteen seventy-six Summer Olympics in Montreal. The fight was just the eighth of his professional career. However, seven months later, on September the 15th, Ali won the title back in a unanimous 15-round decision. What a career, huh? In June 1979, he announced he was retiring from boxing. On the October 2nd, 1980, he returned to the ring and fought heavyweight champ Larry Holmes, who knocked him out in the 11th round after losing to Trevor Burbeck on uh, December the 11th, 1981. Ali left the ring for the last time with a record of 56 wins five losses, and 37 knockouts. In 1984, he was revealed to, have, revealed to have Parkinson's disease. Makes me wonder, perhaps, that disease didn't develop as a result of his bo- boxing career. Ali died <clears throat> on June 3, 2016. Sphinx retired from boxing in 1995 with a record of 26 wins, 17 losses, and 14 knockouts, and he died on February 5, uh, 2021. The great uh, Muhammad Ali, he certainly was, uh, he marched to the beat of his own drum for sure. A really interesting guy. Well, Brightline announced it will begin operation of its 170-mile rail service to Orlando, which includes stops to Miami beginning uh, September the 22nd. Uh, Opening Orlando fulfills our ultimate business model, Brightline President uh, Patrick Goddard said in a statement, we have seen incredible enthusiasm from the business and tourism industries eager to travel between Central and South Florida. The high-speed train is expected to connect both South Florida cities such as Boca Raton, Fort Lauderdale, and West Palm Beach to both locations. Estimated travel time between Miami and Orlando is three and a half hours, according to Brightline. Now, I first read this article, I said, oh, no, don't tell me we're going to build a high-speed speed rail well, we do have a high-speed rail, which is kind of interesting. The costs are extremely reasonable, in my opinion. And also, along with Orlando service into Tampa, is expected to begin in the near future as well. So, again, the name of the—is uh, I, I, uh, Brightline. I don't have a number here to call to check into it, but uh, uh, kind of interesting. We already have one, so we're not going to spend billions of dollars, as they're doing in California, to build a high-speed, high-speed uh, rail Well, federal prosecutors have brought charges against Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, related to gun possession and drug use, according to the court documents. Hunter Biden was indicted on Thursday. In Delaware, federal court facing three counts related to possession of a firearm while using narcotics. Two of the counts are associated with Hunter Biden's alleged completion of a form in which he stated he was not using illegal drugs at the time of purchasing a Colt Cobra revolver in 2018. The third count accuses him of possessing a firearm while concurrently using narcotics. <clears throat> now, what's conspicuously absent from these charges, anything that could uh, link him up with uh, his father, this is uh, his crime and uh, solely his crime. So uh, it makes me wonder, perhaps this is just throwing the public a bone in convict- and convicting him on one charge that doesn't relate to the real issue at hand, which is what we really care about, is uh, the uh, corrupt uh, corrupt behavior of uh, his father, President Joe Biden. <clears throat> well, this is so sad. The Libyan Red Crescent reported Thursday that the death of toll reaching, resulting from floods in eastern Libyan city of Derna has significantly risen to 11,300, and search and rescue av- efforts are still ongoing, an additional 10,100 individuals are currently reported as missing within the coastal city. Authorities in Derna, Libya, have resorted to burying thousands of people in mass graves due to the devastating effects of the floods. As search teams continue their efforts to locate survivors amidst the wreckage, it's just so sad. Uh, it's incredible, and uh, makes me wonder. Both of these uh, dams apparently gave way at the same time, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but it, because these dams just didn't hold, it just uh, the whole area was inundated with floodwaters, which led to this catas- catastrophe. Well, you may have heard by now that convicted murderer Daniello Cavalcante was caught Wednesday by Pennsylvania police after evading officers for two weeks, during which he broke into homes and altered his appearance. The 34-year-old Brazilian inmate had escaped from Chester County Prison 30 miles from Philadelphia after scaling two close walls in a corner of an outside exercise area and reaching the roof. Uh, Cavalcante, armed with a stolen 22 caliber gun, was found lying in a wooded area near a John Deere uh, tractor dealership on the outer perimeter of a nearly 10-square-mile search zone. Police discovered him in a thermal imaging camera On a Drug Enforcement Administration aircraft, Cavalcante uh, tried to escape from tactical units at the scene by crawling through underbrush, but was subdued by a canine police dog who bit him in the head. Boy, it was a bloody mess when uh, they finally brought him up. Uh, Cavalcante was sentenced to life in prison last month for murdering his ex-girlfriend in front of her two children in 2021. He's also wanted for homicide in Brazil. Of course, he, no doubt that he came across our border illegally. Well, they they caught him apparently. Uh, although he he evaded the police for a couple of weeks, and uh, they were really uh, searching for him. With uh, he he was apparently a pretty wily guy. Interesting. Well, a federal judge of Wednesday blocked uh, part of New Mexico governor's. Uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham's public health order suspending the carrying of firearms in public in Albuquerque. The 30-day order would have barred the open and uh, concealed carry of guns within the city and imposed fines on violators. The move drew scrutiny from gunright advocates, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, over concerns about its constitutionality. State Attorney uh, General Raul Torres, a Democrat, announced Tuesday would not defend the governor's orders, saying, I do not believe this emergency order will have any meaningful impact on public safety. I do not believe it passes constitutional muster. Good for him. So I think she's, uh, they're trying to organize some sort of an impeachment effort as well for uh, this heinous act. Uh, There is no, she has no right to call an emergency, public emergency, to take people's guns or prevent them from carrying them. A federal judge on Wednesday declared illegal illegal, a revised version of the federal policy that prevents the deportation of hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the United States as children. U.S. District Judge Andrew Hainan agreed with Texas and eight other states uh, suing to stop the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program. The judge's ruling was ultimately expected to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, sending the program's fate before the high court for the third time. The states have argued that Obama's administration didn't have the authority to first create the program in 2012 because it circumvented Congress. Well, he, certain, he certainly didn't. In fact, he admitted it himself he didn't have the authority to do it. He did it anyhow. So let's see how the court handles this. But now we have a ruling, again, for the third time that says the DACA program is illegal, illegal, doesn't have the legislative foundation needed in order to be a program uh, in immigration. Well, the United Auto Workers Union says it will go on strike at three factories as it presses Detroit companies to come up with a better wage and benefit offer. The factories include General Motors assembly plant in Wedsville, Missouri, a Ford factory in Wayne, Michigan, and a Stellantis Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio. Contracts between 146,000 auto workers and companies are set to expire tonight at 11:59 p.m. Despite increased offers from Ford and GM, it appears that no deals will be reached before the deadline. And General Motors has tried to avoid a looming strike by the uh, auto workers. With uh, they had significant uh, increases, pay increases for them, vacation days, and better benefits offered to them, uh, among other perks. The proposal, which GM CEO uh, Mary Barra called compelling and unprecedented, addresses many of the union's demands, but continues to fall short on others, such as a 40% pay increase over four years. Uh, Ford sources. Uh, said the automaker would have lost $14.4 billion over the last four years if the current demands had been in effect. Instead of recovering uh, or recording nearly $30 billion in profits, uh, UAW President Sean Feen said, uh, determined to achieve those uh, terms. The source, who agreed to speak on condition of anonymity. Uh, due to the ongoing discussions, also pushback on UAW's arguments that members aren't making a living wage. He said the average compensation under Ford's current proposal for first-year uh, UAW workers and employees would be is, would be $132,000, including $92,000 in cash and $17,000 in health care coverage. So these uh, auto workers, I think, are doing pretty well. I don't know about you, but we're all going through a difficult time with inflation and what's happening with the uh, Bidenomics. Uh, but these, first of all, I think it's going to be, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we had to sustain your prolonged strike here because I don't think the auto workers or the automobile manufacturers can afford uh, these steep prices uh, for labor at this time as we're kind of heading into a recession as it appears. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman. He is a senior legal fellow with the Cato Institute. I'm sorry, with the Pacific Legal Foundation. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: I'm Bob Hardin, the host of The Bob Hardin Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is B's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. at Lulubees.com and stop by Lullaby's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulubees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 4541.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show of providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Bob Erzig. He's Director of Public Relations at St. Matthew's House. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a senior legal fellow with the Pacific Legal Foundation. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Pacific Legal Foundation. You bet. We're a
4: legal nonprofit, and we defend Americans for free from government overreach and
1: abuse which helps us all, quite frankly, in making sure that, <laughs> <laughs> that we're living, are trying to live in a free society. So um, let's talk about what's going on. That We're uh, quickly approaching September the 30th, and that's the day that uh, uh, we're gonna, we don't have any kind of a spending deal in place. So can you give us an update?
4: Indeed. So uh, just the big picture here is, is that we've got a baseline for spending. And by that, I mean in the debt ceiling deal that was reached in July, or I'm sorry, in April, um, uh, Congress had tentatively agreed both chambers to, to uh, spending levels of $1.47 trillion for the, this fiscal year coming up. Um, well, notwithstanding that agreement, the Senate um, worked on a spending plan that would increase, that would go about $50 billion above that baseline. Um, the House or House leadership, House Republicans, in turn, they're eyeing about $115 billion less um, than that baseline. However, I will note here um, the money that the, the, the money that the House seeks below this baseline is primarily made up for in terms of clawing back uh, appropriations that were not spent. So mm-hmm. it's uh, not true cuts, if you will. Um nonetheless, that's sort of the big picture. At the granular level, I mean, in both chambers, the situation is a mess. Um, you know, if you were just looking at it and everything else was being equal, you would imagine that, you know, one chamber is coming in above the agreement, one chamber is coming in below the agreement. Well, the, they'll have to meet in conference to hash out their disagreement, and they'd probably uh, come out to an, uh, a result that is in line with the debt ceiling deal. Um, not, But not withspan- notwithstanding, I guess, that, that logical outcome, um, it's a total mess in both chambers. And the reason it's a total mess in both chambers is that Congress, again, has not done the hard work of passing an appropriations measure. Um, and and I, I've belabored this point on many prior Fridays. But there's a procedure by which Congress is supposed to undertake this all-important task of spending our public money. Um, and it's supposed to take about six months, and it's supposed to entail all sorts of deliberation. And again, we've seen Congress do what they've they've basically done for the last three decades, uh, which is totally abandon this process and instead kick all the important decisions down to the the very last minute. Uh, you know, in this instance, September 30th. Um, so it is a highly fluid situation it's uh, at the end of the day ultimately i guess it is most likely that they they both chambers are going to come in you know above and below the debt ceiling agreement and then ultimately negotiate i guess a compromise that uh, is largely in line with the agreement um but between now and then it's anyone's guess how they get there and indeed it's entirely possible that they don't get there and the government does shut down and to be sure I'm not uh, bemoaning, I'm not wailing about a government shutdown. I mean, I do think that life goes on. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm more disappointed that in the 118th Congress, despite Speaker McCarthy's assurances that they would do so, um, Congress has again failed to do the hard work of appropriating.
1: And he's on thin ice. I listened to uh, Matt Getz, the uh, uh, representative from Florida, and uh, I think he's ready to pull the plug with regard to McCarthy and uh, ask for his replacement. Uh, he's, and, and this is on the impeachment issue as well as the budget issue. Well, with leadership
4: comes responsibility, <clears throat> and I'm all for it. And ju- just to be clear here for the listeners, what you're alluding to is it's a new privilege in this 118th Congress. And this is something the Freedom Caucus negotiated in exchange for voting for uh, McCarthy to become Speaker. And that is that any one member can put a motion on the floor that if it gets a majority, ejects the speaker from the office or from the speaker's office. Um, So that is a powerful oversight tool. And I'll be frank here. Um, You know, Speaker McCarthy, I I do think he won the debt ceiling negotiation that was back in April and won some important concessions, but he hasn't followed through on them. And it is disappointing that he has yet to marshal the, the leadership wherewithal to actually undertake a real appropriations process so uh, th- at this point um uh, certainly don't uh, advocate one way or another but I-, I do understand why um lawmakers would be uh, disaffected by his leadership
1: yeah so before i let you go can you give us an update on the Biden investigation and the impeachment inquiry
4: the <laughs> shoot, as, as i'm sure your listeners are no doubt aware the house uh or Speaker McCarthy unilaterally um, initiated an impeachment inquiry this week. And I've spoken about this on prior Fridays. The the practical effect is that it enhances the House's ability to get information. And by that, I mean it basically enhances their legal case in court when uh, anyone from Biden's team or the Biden administration or et cetera, uh, tries to uh, obfuscate, tries to uh, decline, tries to not play ball in terms of, um, with an investigation. So uh, legally speaking, I I certainly support that. Um, I'm for Congress getting to the bottom of this. Um, At the same time, it is disappointing that he didn't take a vote. He had said he was going to, um, and instead he continued with uh, Nancy Pelosi, who who had done the same unilateral commencement of an impeachment process without uh, getting a majority um, vote in the house. You know, why did speaker McCarthy not seek seek a vote? Um, It's, it's quite frankly, it's, it's in line with uh, the appropriations stuff I was talking about. Right. We're seeing is a dodging of responsibility. Um, It's not because I don't think he had the votes. It's because he didn't want to put moderate members in a position where they had to go on record with a tough vote. Which, yeah. again, is just a, 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 it's not a terribly uh, favorable. It, it's an indictment of the modern Congress. I mean, that's the way it's things cer- work a lot.
1: It certainly is. Well, anyway, I just genuinely appreciate your uh, bringing these issues to our attention. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Bob Erzak. He's the director of public relations at St. Matthew's House, that and more, right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs>
0: For more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting
3: Network.
1: Are you looking to buy or sell a home? 5310. That's 239-269-5310. you have questions about your retirement, Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239 239-
0: Bob Harton Show. And now here's
1: your host, Bob Harton. You know, selling a home can be a stress, stressful event, and buying a home as well. And uh, somebody you want on your side is the husband and wife team of Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties. They do a terrific work job, and uh, you can find out more by giving them a call. Again, Megan and Matt Chionis with Gulf Coast International Properties at 269 5310. That's 269 5310. We have with us Bob Erzik. He is a Director of Public Relations at the St. Matthew's House, one of the great institutions here on the Paradise Coast. Bob, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on this morning, Bob.
1: Yeah, for our listeners that may not be familiar with St. Matthew's House, perhaps you could tell us about it.
3: Yeah, definitely. St. Matthew's House has been in existence for over 35 years here in Naples in the Southwest Florida area, and basically what we focus on is uh, serving uh folks experiencing hunger, homelessness, and addiction. Uh, You may have seen us uh, maybe on the TV news with all of our food distributions that we do throughout Southwest Florida, both in Lee uh, and Collier counties, as well as Hendry County. This week alone, we have six food distributions. So many times we'll feed up to 600 families at at one single food distribution uh, because there is such an incredible need out there. The food insecurity in Southwest Florida is just amazing. Uh, So many folks out there need help. And that was just exacerbated by uh, by Hurricane Ian uh, with folks uh, losing their homes, their apartments, uh, sometimes even their jobs, their vehicles as well. And just the need in this area has been amazing. And it really kicked up since the pandemic. Uh, You know, back about uh, a little bit over three years ago, we were feeding about 75 families per week. That jumped uh, during the pandemic, and, and it currently is at that level as well, to t- from twenty to 25000 per month. So that gives you an idea, Bob, uh, about the need out there right now in southwest Florida.
1: Indeed. I, I do want to mention, though, first of all, that St. Matthew's House is a not-for-profit. And it's right. not funded at all by the government, so it very much depends on the support here in the community. Second of all, what I really appreciate about St. Matthew's House is there's accountability uh, if, you, once you, if you come into some St. Matthew's House program for any of these needs, uh, well, you're held accountable. You, you have to make progress. You're, everybody's working to get you on your feet and back into the workplace or uh, whatever it might be, and uh, you, you, you have to be able to uh, demonstrate that you're working to make progress.
3: That is so true. Uh, there are really no handouts. Uh, you know, we help folks get back on their feet, especially like, say, for instance, you, you, you come to our shelter uh, you're allowed to stay there, but, but you have to go out and you have to be looking for a job yeah. as well at the same time. And we help you. We've got services as well to help find jobs and things. So you're right about that. Uh, we definitely want to help people, but we also want to help them get back on their feet. And that that's one of the great things that you mentioned St. Matthew's House does.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is you have businesses there uh, that, uh, provide job training so that you you people can actually working in the uh, catering business or the uh, restaurant business or the car whatever it might be and uh, uh, gain skills in order to get into the workplace so it's really a terrific organization the more I talk about it again it's just a great organization now Bob I understand uh, you had personal experiences with Ian and it affected you and your life
3: I did. St. Matthew's House actually had over 30 employees that were affected by Hurricane Ian to some extent. Uh, My wife and I uh, were also uh, affected by that. We owned a condo uh, on the south end of uh, Fort Myers Beach, right where the Big Carlos Pass Bridge is. Mm. And uh, we decided, uh, you know, when we moved into there a few years ago that we were going to remodel it and put in hurricane impact windows uh, that could withstand 150 miles an hour of wind. So we decided to stay through the hurricane. Uh, At that time, and we kind of watched everything happen, but we ended up losing both of our vehicles. We had parked them away from the water as best as we could, but we watched the water just kind of engulf them and swallow them up, and and that was kind of depressing. And our condo uh, itself was was perfectly fine. The uh, hurricane windows withstood the wind and the rain of Hurricane Ian, but when we went down to our lobby level, we noticed that uh, uh, the storm surge, which was about 12 to 15 feet in our area, just blew through our lobby and destroyed everything including the electrical panels in our building. So uh, we ended up having to be uh, evacuated, emergency evacuated by the Bonita uh, Fire Department Mm. a couple of days after the hurricane, us and and, and the other owners that were living in the building about full-time. There's probably about eight of us, eight owners who were there full-time, so we had to evacuate the building because we had no... Nothing functioned in the building. There was no electricity, there was no water, no plumbing, no internet, you name it. So there was no possible way to safely live in the building. Uh, No elevators, of course, and we happened to live on the top floor. So that was always fun going up and down the stairs, 13 flights uh, and things like that to get out of the building and and bring things out. Uh, uh, So yeah, we had to be evacuated. And uh, in the process uh, since then, since Hurricane Ian, as we approached the one year anniversary, we are about to make our third move. So it's been, uh, it's kind of like our lives were pretty much thrown into a, uh, say, washing machine and somebody put it in on an endless spin cycle. Yeah. Is The way I kind of like to think about it is, is what our lives have been like in the last year. And, uh, you know, as of right now, the latest update in our building is w- if we're lucky, we may be able to get back into our condo maybe by the end of this year. But I'm I'm kind of skeptical on that because we've had promises in the past and, you know, and, and, and we're just like pretty much a lot of folks who own condos uh, on Fort Myers Beach or homes on Fort Myers Beach. You know, the, the devastation and the recovery is just kind of an endless process right now dealing with insurance companies, et cetera, et cetera.
1: You know, there's a certain irony that you're serving uh, those, uh, that, you know, you're finding yourself almost in the same circumstances as those sure. you're serving. And, uh, you know, I would imagine it's, uh, it's had an impact on you. How, how did you sustain yourself during this process?
3: Actually, uh, what what made it a little, uh, you know, a little easier was being able to go to work at St. Matthew's House and help other folks out, you know, on a daily basis. You know, going to food distributions and seeing that, you know, you know that um, my wife and I weren't the only ones that were going through this, obviously. But there were so many people, hundreds, thousands of people going through this, and St. Matthew's House was always there, you know, right after Hurricane Ian you know, with our food distributions and, and talking with folks in line coming through through to get food and just seeing how they were affected, how they had lost their homes or their apartments or their vehicles. So it made it a little bit easier for me just to see that, you know, I wasn't going through this thing, you know, alone, my wife and I, but uh, that was a big help. And it was, and it was tremendous to see, say, Matthew's house doing what it does every day in the community, just helping people, whatever their circumstances. And, and we continue to do that uh, every day.
1: So important the work that you do, and uh, you know, I personally, we we give to Saint Matthew's House. It's very important Thank to us, you. and to to see the work. I, I'm hopeful that our listeners will go to the website, uh, check it out, make a contribution. I understand the work that's being done because I just to come back to this point, you know, we see cities like uh, San Francisco and others, people laying on the streets, and the, no accountability. St. Matthew's House has a program that should be a template for the rest of the nation on how to deal with these issues of homelessness and and uh, uh, being underserved with regard to food. So again, I think the website, if I'm not mistaken, is stmatthewshouse.org.
3: That is correct. That is correct. You can you can get all the information that you need uh, if you'd like to just volunteer or if you'd like to donate with your finances. Uh, we would we would love to have you as part of our team
1: terrific organization again stmatthewshouse.org do do and visit do make a contribution no matter how small it can make a difference for as you mentioned uh and we haven't even talked about this wall street journal uh article that is heartbreaking in so many ways to yeah. see seniors who are uh, homeless as a result of some of the things that have happened you know what i'd like to have you come back and maybe we can talk about that bob
3: Love to be on. Thank you for having me today, Bob.
1: My pleasure indeed. Bob Urzik, again, Director of Public Relations with St. Matthew's House. Again, thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to be visiting with uh, uh, Michael Cannon. He's Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
1: Two-thirds of parents prefer educational options for their children, with 40% strongly preferring options for their child's education. School choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America.
0: Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host,
1: Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. And you can find out more and get tickets to some great performances. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. Right now, we have with us Michael Cannon. He is director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Great to be back, Bob. Thank you, Michael. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
2: We are a libertarian think tank. We uh, reside here in Washington, D.C., and we try to introduce into debates over everything from foreign policy, to health care, to taxes and budget, to civil liberties, immigration, and so forth, the traditional American values of individual liberty, limited government, free
1: markets, and peace. It's a big job. <laughs> and again, Cato.org is the website. I hope you check out the very robust website, Cato.org. Bob, uh, we've been, or Michael, we've been talking about uh, short-term health plans and Medicare, And uh, it's very fluid right now. I was wondering if you could bring us up to date on what's going on.
2: Right. So there are a number of uh, things going on in Washington right now that uh, some of them good, some of them bad, and some of them ironic. Uh, The the good and the ironic are that uh, the Biden administration, uh, with the powers that a Democratic Congress gave it under the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Biden administration is trying to reduce the cost of the Medicare program uh, by lowering the prices that Medicare pays for many prescription drugs. Uh, if you compare how much Medicare pays to uh, how much uh, uh, they pay uh, overseas, the drug companies are getting a lot more out of the U.S. taxpayer than they are out of taxpayers abroad. And uh, that is not only costing taxpayers a lot more money. It's costing seniors uh, money because they have to pay for part of the high prices of these drugs here. And so the Biden administration is trying to reduce those prices. And you would think that he would have the support of limited government Republicans who have been trying to, well, some of whom have uh, have been trying to, and a lot of, uh, all of whom say they want to reduce the cost of the Medicare program, and yet uh, he's getting pushback from them. So you have, uh, the good is that the the Democrats are trying to reduce uh, Medicare spending on prescription drugs, the irony is that uh, Republicans are fighting them on that and trying to keep Medicare spending high.
1: So, you Uh, know, the only reason I think that they'd want to do that is perhaps to uh, make sure that uh, the drug companies, pharmaceuticals, have the money to uh, innovate and to create new drugs. Uh, That would be perhaps one of the reasons for that.
2: Well, that's true, but you don't want to give the drug companies whatever prices they want just to encourage them to innovate. If so, we would give them 100 percent of GDP. At some point, <laughs> you got to say. At some point, you got to say no. Right. And uh, uh, and throughout its history, Democrats basically admit this: that throughout Democrats' his, uh, the, the Medicare program's history, it has been saying yes, yes, yes to whatever the industry wants, including the pharmaceutical industry. And so, uh, but even um, more fundamental than that, if what you want to do is encourage drug innovation. You don't want to use the Medicare program to do that. That's not what the Medicare program exists to do. Right. It exists to provide uh, health care to eligible enrollees at, hopefully, at a at minimum expense to the taxpayer. and uh, it ha- But it has a history of doing that at maximum expense. And so uh, if, if what you want to do is encourage drug innovation, you do that through the patent system. That's why that exists. Unlike Medicare, that has a constitutional... Uh, uh, justification: There is a provision in the Constitution that gives the Congress the power to uh, create and issue patents. There really isn't one uh, for, uh, for for the Medicare program. Good point. And and so uh, so that that argument, uh, while it has a surface appeal, is completely inapposite here. It just doesn't hold any water.
1: Well, we certainly want to see lower prices on everything, and we know there's so much fat in government programs, including Medicare. So. Uh, how about on the front of the whole idea of uh, the Biden trying to eliminate or to reduce the effectiveness of short-term health care programs, short-term uh, health insurance?
2: So for 27 years, Congress has exempted a type of health insurance from all federal health insurance regulation. Congress calls these short-term limited duration insurance plans. And even when Congress passed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, what we now call Obamacare. It didn't touch this exemption. It did not impose all of those new regulations on short term plans. Short term plans are exempt from Obamacare's costliest and most harmful regulations. And so millions of people have been purchasing short term plans, using it as their primary source of insurance. uh, uh, And uh, Obamacare supporters don't like that. Obamacare, when they, because when people do that, sure, there's an argument that, Uh, they make the argument that uh, those plans might not be perfect. And you know what? They're not, but neither is Obamacare. And what really is motivating Obamacare supporters to try to kill these plans is that uh, they are competing with Obamacare and they are succeeding and that prevents Obamacare from hiding the costs of the taxes and subsidies that Obamacare creates. And so they figure if they can stop, Healthy people from enrolling in long-term plans, force them into Obamacare plans, that will help to hide the cost of Obamacare. But the way that they're planning to do this, what B- President Biden has proposed, is to cancel all short-term plans after just four months. Uh, now, uh, right right now, you could buy a short-term plan that lasts 12 months or 36 months, You can one that will get you to Obamacare's next open enrollment period, uh, if that's what you want to do. But if you cancel these plans after just four months, it's not going to affect the healthy people. They'll just enroll in a new four-month plan. But if you, who it's going to hurt are the people who get sick during that first four-month yeah. period, develop an expensive illness that uh, will then prevent them from enrolling in another four-month plan, and they won't be able to enroll in an Obamacare plan for up to 12 months, which means they could face up to 12 months without any health insurance, with a very expensive illness and no way to pay their medical bills. And you might think that that's an unintended side effect of President Biden's proposal, but that is the purpose of his proposal, is to hurt the uh, consumers who choose the competitor's product to scare them into buying an Obamacare plan.
1: Now, we know Obamacare has subsidies based on your income. Uh, These short-term health plans, they don't have subsidies, do they? They don't, but they can cost sixty percent less than yeah. an Obamacare plan
2: costs, and they can provide. Uh, they they have broader provider networks, so you're more likely to get the doctor to, and the hospital that you want in your network, and they often have lower deductibles. But you know what? We we sur- we did a survey of all the plans to, that are available in all fifty states. You can buy a a plan that costs more than. An Obamacare plan, if you want, right? And you can buy plenty of coverage. You can get five million dollars in uh, uh, lifetime coverage, which is more than enough for for all practically everyone who's going to enroll in one of these plans.
1: Unbelievable, Michael. So uh, my point was, of course, is that uh, just by this very action by the Biden administration, they're going to actually increase the cost of health insurance uh, for the for the uh, taxpayer. But uh, you, you make so many good points. And now uh, this is, I think, the period for uh, comment is over now. Is this going to be put into effect, you think?
2: So the Biden administration can now take its time reviewing the 13,000 comments that it received. Hmm. Uh, most of the negative on this proposal, uh, and then the administration really can do almost whatever it wants. Uh, it can. What I requested that it do in the comments that I filed is that it shelve this proposal. But it just say, "Hey, you know what? Uh, this is a mistake. Current uh, rules are better than what we proposed, and uh, and leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, or they could they could mo- they could modify the proposal. They could uh, uh, formalize it, finalize it as is. Uh, there are some rules on what they can and cannot do. If they if they go too far uh, in uh, torturing the language of the statute, then someone can challenge them in federal court. And uh, I think that if they do finalize this proposal as they put it forward, then someone could challenge it in federal court.
1: Yeah, we we only hope so. Again, Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. The website is Cato.org, C O C A T O dot org. Michael, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime Bob, thanks. My pleasure indeed. Coming up, uh, Professor Larry Bell, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: back to the Bob Harton show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: You know, I'm sitting here talking to myself. I've got to pot out the microphones. The second time I've done this was this week. Nevertheless, uh, again, uh, this segment of the show brought to you by the Foundation for Government Accountability. The website is thefga.org. We have with us uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of many books. His latest is Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries, My Life by Design. He also writes a column for Newsmax.com. It's called... Uh, on point, and I just encourage you to check it out on Newsmax.com. Professor, thank you so much for joining us here on the show.
5: Bob, I always enjoy it. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Professor. Well, your latest column, No Politics Here, This Impeachment Inquiry Is Real. Maybe you can tell us about it.
5: Yeah, I think uh, my, my, my sense of it is probably like a lot of other people that First of all, I don't think, uh, you know, the, the, the Republicans certainly know that they're not going to get an impeachment, regardless of whatever evidence they have through the Senate, because it's controlled by the by the uh, Democrats, and there's really no expectation of that whatsoever. But uh, you know, the House committees, oversight, judiciary, ways and means, and so on, have been really blocked by the Biden by the administration, by the all the various agencies and so on are getting information about uh, Hunter Biden and well, influence peddling, the foreign influence peddling, and connecting back to Joe and, and actually the, much of the family. So they've been blocked, and of course we've seen some very well-informed and you know whistleblowers that have provided information and got a lot of stuff on Hunter's laptop from hell, and Bank records and so on, but you know the Democrats are saying, "Well, see, there's no direct evidence tying it to, to Joe," and and well, that's that's uh, there's another point of view in that because there's a lot of information showing that you know the you know the Biden family they made at least at least twenty million dollars of of uh, back channel money when Joe was uh, vice president, so it's. Yeah apparently still flowing so the purpose of the piece of inquiry is that, that it gives more muscle to the investigations which is now really joined at the hip They've, there's now a, a, a joint investigation among those particularly those three those three different committees to uh, be able to go after some banking records and other records this is you know they Originally went through the suspicious activity reports that are reported by banks as you know fishy looking transactions, and there's there's about 170 of them on on on, on Hunter Biden and and the Uncle Jim Biden and so on, which is you know very a <laughs> few people have have any suspicious activity reports, much less maybe a couple. There's 170 of them, right? And and so, but they've been stalemated. They reached a point where, you know, they they can't they can't they can't follow the, the money trail because uh, Treasury's been blocking it, FBI has been blocking it, uh, the uh, archives, National Archives has been blocking it. You know the, you know uh, um, the president and, and former vice president have when he was vice president have all these uh, surname uh, that they use in emails and communications, and uh, they, you know, there's, to be able to, be able to get at the information, uh, it's been impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they reached a point where they, they hit a wall, so the whole point of the inquiry is really to get information. They They've got a lot of it, and but it's a point now of, of having the, the muscle to follow the money to see if it leads to foreign bank accounts and other, you know, other uh, matters that uh, will 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 really reveal what's going on.
1: Well, you know, uh, Professor, this it's just so disturbing to think that right now you, you'd mentioned that the Senate. There's probably no chance of getting this through the Senate, the impeachment and finding him guilty. But it seems to me they ought to be able to review the evidence before making that decision. This just demonstrates to me that in so many ways, this is so political. It's got. It's it should be it should be a serious consideration of treason and uh, high high crimes and misdemeanors, as the Constitution says. Well, I also,
5: I really doubt that that the Republicans want Biden to to. To bow out before the uh, 2024 election because
1: hmm.
5: uh, you know what's the game? You know the, the the Democrats have have been after Trump. You know two two impeachment trials and then you got you know and then four current uh, um, indictments in four different locations and they're scheduling them so they just really block out all the time. You know the campaign time and and Bankrupt the campaign funds and so on for 2024. So, so they've been using this, you know, th- this legal stuff to. I think I think, like you say, one one goal is to find Trump guilty and yada yada yada. But I think the larger goal is really to make him unelectable. Yeah. And it's and it's had the opposite effect. It seems to be having the opposite effect of, the, of a lot of the the uh, country saying, "Oh, well, this this isn't fair," and so on. It's is is transparently political. Now, you can certainly bet that the impeachment inquiry will will get branded by the left leaning press and so on as as tit for tat, and 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 it's just another cover. But the point is, no, it's real. We're talking about, you know, initially, Joe Biden was saying that. He had no knowledge of his son's activities. Now we see all these meetings with with partners and 13 overseas trips and Air Force Two and a lot of them leading to big, big money flowing to the Biden family and so on. So then then it morphed to, well, there's no evidence that Joe had any direct connections with this. And he had no direct connections with his son's business, and well, we're we're sort of seeing this differently as well in terms of you know the Burisma and ukraine the uh, Joe threatened to withhold a billion dollars unless they fired the prosecutor and then magically he gets five million dollars Joe personally gets five million dollars from from barisma as yeah. as, did, as as did, did Hutter. so there's. The deniability is getting really to be a uh, 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 steep, steep climb for them, and so it's a—it's uh, really an ugly time for our our country. It's it's an ugly time for us in terms of you know we we represent ourselves as a bastion of of you know of justice, and we see this kind of tomfoolery and worse happening at a top level of government. Uh, there's nothing There's nothing to cheer about here other than maybe uh, we'll come out of this
1: stronger. We can only hope so. Again, Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston of Space Architecture and author of many books, his latest, Architectures Beyond Boxes and Boundaries. I hope you check it out. Uh, give it a read. It is really fantastic. Professor, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And, Bob, thanks back. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Professor. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. On Monday, we're going to have terrific guests, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Larry Bell, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Jim Mittag. Jim is a former Barron's Washington bureau chief and author of many murder mysteries. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, I hope you'll pass on the word to your friends. That's one of the ways we support our advertisers. I really appreciate you tuning in and listening to the show. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
0: Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.